One of the things I look for in the movies I want to escape into is a kind of enclosed reality, sort of a seamless separation from everyday life, both aesthetically and logically. Hello, Monster Island Resorters, and thank you for joining me once again at the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. My name is Miguel Rodriguez, and I'm your host in all things horror in history, art, literature, film, and beyond. But for this episode, things are very different indeed, for the keys to the Monster Island Resort are being relinquished to the one and only Todd Statman, who created the legendary Die Danger, Die Die Kill blog. Todd also co-hosts the Infernal Brains podcast with Tars Tarkas of TarsTarkas.net and writes for the brilliant website Teleport City. What do all these things, as well as Monster Island Resort, have in common? Well, we all count ourselves among an elite group of pop culture enthusiasts known worldwide as the Mysterious Order of the Skeleton Suit, or Moss for short. Of all the blogs and podcasts I spend time on, it is unequivocally my colleagues in Moss who constantly fill me with awe at their clear-headed and poignant thinking regarding the outermost fringes of pop cinema, literature, and art. I am daily humbled by each of them, and you can get a complete list at the very top of monsterislandresort.org of all the agents of the mysterious order of the skeleton suit. For this February month, Moss is collaborating on another cadre-wide project. We have done this in the past. The cultural gutters Carol Borden has joined me to talk werewolves for Harry Beasts Month on episode 68. I have become Action Island Resort and reviewed the film Aftermath for Fist of B-List during episode 51, I reviewed Maquiste Contro il Vampiro for Muscle Man Month on episode 54, and more. For this time around, we have decided to play a bit of merry-go-round with each other's creations. I will be writing a piece for Die Danger Die Die Kill, hereafter to be known as 4DK, and Todd, in turn, has agreed to turn the Monster Island Resort into an episode of 4DK. We gave each other topics. Todd provided me with a number of Japanese ghost movies to discuss on his blog. So I had to think of a topic for Todd. Me being me, I have a real fascination about what it is that drives people's peculiar passions, especially those of us whose passions are for things that are generally maligned or ignored. Todd Stadman definitely fits into that latter group. If you haven't read 40K, well, first of all, shame on you. But if you haven't read it, it is, among other things, a review blog for some of the most obscure oddities of foreign film that I have ever seen on the internet. They tend to be extremely fanciful and bizarre micro-budget affairs. Most of the film titles I am hard-pressed to even pronounce, 
and most of them are not even available with subtitles. Todd ventures to watch and review them all the same. So rather than assign Todd a film to review or have him join me on here to just have a chat, I decided to be hard on the poor guy. Todd, said I, how about a treatise on your personal philosophy behind the types of films you love? What do they supply for you that fuels your passion so intensely? It was not a nice question of me. I know because I was putting Todd in a position where he had to self-reflect. He had to justify. He had to write about and then record himself, giving a voice to what drives him. It is no small task, I assure you. But gosh darn it, he did it. So before I throw over the lever and make this become the 40k podcast, I just want to say some things in terms of an introduction. First of all, there are a lot of things Todd says that makes me feel vindicated about my own tastes. We seem to have reached an age where cinema feels the need to strive for such a level of realism that I personally feel completely lost and empty most of the time. One of the reasons I watch movies is to escape what I see as the oppressive nature of both reason and logic. Todd articulates those feelings and the reasons for them beautifully in his speech. And I also want to mention that Todd is going through a list of examples of films that represent larger concepts that attract him. Some of the titles are foreign and may be hard to understand. So I've compiled a complete list of all the titles that are mentioned in Todd's podcast episode, and that that list will be available on monsterislandresort.org in the show notes for this episode, for anyone who's curious enough to seek them out for themselves. And now, without any further ado, Monster Island Resort has officially become Die, Danger, Die, Die, Kill. Hi, this is Todd Statman from Die Danger, Die Die Kill. As some of you know, that's a blog where I write about all kinds of international pop cinema, or you might call it pulp cinema, trash cinema, exploitation cinema, genre cinema, if you will. Most of it older stuff. I tend to write about what the rest of the world was watching while you, American listener, were watching Star Wars over and over again, or what have you. I found an old comment from Durian Dave of the Soft Film blog where he described me as sampling the street food of world cinema, and I kind of like that. I think that's pretty accurate. If the foreign films that play the festival circuit and the art houses are the fare that you're served up on fine china on white tablecloths, the films I cover tend to be the stuff that you find at the grimy street carts, the ones that give you a little bit of pause and that present uh, more of a risk of making you maybe a little ill. Basically, the films that play in the noisy theaters where the working people go. Anyway, Miguel asked me to talk about what attracts me to the films I write about, and I'm going to do that. And in the process, I'll be touching on a lot of my favorite movies, so this will serve as a sort of annotated best-of list, basically. Like a lot of people, I look to movies for escape, 
Now, escapist cinema is a term that a lot of people use pejoratively as in, well, it was fine for escapist cinema, which I think is kind of hilarious because that implies that film is where we go to confront reality. Um, You know, uh, I basically don't trust any film that purports to show me real life. Whereas showing me unreality and fantasy is exactly what film is suited to. As for my own taste in escapism, I tend to look for total escape through movies. Basically something as far removed from my daily reality as possible. I can't really explain why that is. I think it's just a habit of mine from when I was a kid. I always have been kind of a fantasist, uh, living in my own head, sort of. And even though there's nothing in my adult life that I feel I need to necessarily escape from, it's still a place my head wants to go. Uh, You could say that cult cinema is my way of finding an altered state, my drug of choice, now that I don't do regular drugs anymore, of achieving that that altered state. You know, I still drink alcohol, which it turns out conveniently is the perfect accompaniment to watching these movies. Anyway, because of my desire for total escape through movies, I'm attracted to films that are, one, obscure because they're removed from the mainstream conversation about movies, and two, foreign because they're foreign, basically, and that much more removed from my reality. I also find that genre films from countries where life is uh, pretty tough for a large part of the movie-going populace, say the Philippines or parts of India, and where cinema is one of the only affordable means of distraction, those tend to be the most fanciful and energetic in their efforts to provide that kind of escape. One of the things I look for in the movies I want to escape into is a kind Kind of enclosed reality, sort of a seamless separation from everyday life, both aesthetically and logically. Probably the perfect example of this is Lucha Cinema, which anybody who reads my blog knows I love with a passion. Lucha Cinema, to anyone who's familiar with it, definitely has its own rules. Among those rules, that a guy in a wrestling mask can wait in a bank line without anyone regarding it as unusual. Nor is it considered unusual to consult a masked wrestler on matters such as fine art forgery, medieval rituals, or astrophysics. And indeed, no one even comments on the fact that the wrestler is wearing a mask to the point where the mask has come to serve as the wrestler's actual face and we even accept that the wrestler wears the mask at all times even when he's sleeping as we've seen santo actually do on a few occasions also you have to accept if you are in the lucha universe that if you're in a public place where any wrestler is it would not be entirely outside possibility for frankenstein's monster dracula the wolfman and the mummy to barge in and start tearing the place apart. And I've got to say that I much prefer the Lucha film's approach to identity to that of the typical American superhero film. I mean, I'd much prefer that Sano sleep in his mask than have a nebbishy alter ego, which of course in a Hollywood movie would have him having an unreciprocated crush on some woman who of course is in turn in love with Santo without realizing that he is Santo. 
Another type of enclosed reality with its own set of rules that I particularly enjoy are Taiwanese fantasy martial arts movies. Here, at any moment, someone can start firing cartoon laser beams out of their hands or produce some ancient weapon with fantastic powers. Weird creatures can emerge with no explanation. And mastery of kung fu can allow people to run across water and effortlessly leap from treetop to treetop. This love of enclosed reality also makes me fascinated, and this is a long-time, lifelong fascination, with the Super Marionation series of Jerry Anderson, and now also the marionette series of Roberta Lee, which I've recently discovered, because there the human presence is almost completely eliminated in favor of this complex, meticulously constructed miniature world that's inhabited by puppets. I also enjoy the documentary Marwin Call for that reason. That's the one in which the guy creates this miniature town and which embodies all of these complex narratives that he's created. The next thing I'm really a sucker for is hyper-reality. I love films that warp reality through artifice, super-saturated colors, or exaggeratedly artificial-looking indoor sets. I'm crazy for those. I love everything from the look of old Technicolor films to the super-saturated look of classic Thai films, which was due to them using colorverse film stock. The Toho films from the 60s, great use of primary color. Uh, of course, the Batman TV series, Douglas Sirk movies with those Necco wafer pastels, and of course, Bollywood movies, which you can't beat for exuberant color. As far as hyperreal films that also create an enclosed reality, I think the Wachowski Speed Racer is a pretty extreme example of that. And I like that okay, actually. I particularly love the Jerry Cotton Eurospy movies from the 60s. These provide a good example in that they're based on a series of German pulp novels that are set in New York City featuring an FBI agent named Jerry Cotton, yet they were filmed in Hamburg on very low budgets, but they still struggled mightily to include the New York setting because it was such an important part of the story. So what you get is a lot of scenes of people delivering dialogue in front of obvious enlarged photographs of Times Square, a lot of rear projection, lots and lots of rear projection, and not just in car scenes where you usually see it, but in scenes of people walking down the street, outside the windows of people's offices, so you see the Manhattan skyline outside, even though it was filmed in a studio in Hamburg. But then you inevitably are going to have once in a while a scene in which people are located on a hilly cobblestone street that looks nothing like any part of Manhattan and they're delivering their dialogue in dubbed Bronx accents. The result is a kind of dreamlike sense of placelessness, like the sense when you're lost and the place you're in looks familiar but you know it's not where you're supposed to be. And I like that. It definitely creates a unique reality, which is what I'm into, man.
One perfect example of the use of unnaturally vibrant colors and artificiality to create an enclosed escapist reality is also a pretty good example of the dark narcotic side of escapist cinema. That would be Munchausen, which was a film commissioned by Joseph Goebbels for the 25th anniversary of Germany's DIFA studios. It was made in 1943, right in the middle of World War II, and at a time when the war wasn't going so great for the German people. So what we have here is your basic opiate of the masses type stuff. In my review, I called it a cinematic show pony for the Third Reich. I also described it as being obscene in its opulence. And this is a film where the richness of the color really reaches to the point of engorgement and that's exacerbated by the set design which is so busy and ornate there's just baubles everywhere competing for your eye and it is an obscene <laughs> uh, an obscene spectacle also, if you didn't know its background, it can be definitely be seductive and tantalizing. Another example of a film like this is, and I'm going to mispronounce this, this is an Iranian film from 1966 called Amir Arsalan-e-Namdar. This was directed, written, and produced by Esmail Kushan, and he thrived as a maker of what they actually called escapist cinema, during the enforced stability, basically, that followed the CIA-backed coup that put the Shah in power. These films are now derided by the intelligentsia in Iran as being opiate of the masses, being garbage, basically. You're not going to see these playing a retrospective at Cannes anytime soon. Moving on to a more benign type of fascism, my love of artifice and escapism, combined with the fact that I'm a guy, uh, also makes me love superhero and comic book movies, though not necessarily those based on existing heroes. I mean, I love Spider-Man and X-Men as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to write about them because there's a gajillion people writing about those on the internet. And, you know, that's part of my lingering punk rock rejection of the mainstream, I guess. I tend to prefer invented heroes who are informed by the sensibilities of the foreign cultures they come from. Key examples of this include two of my very favorite films, both of them from Hong Kong. The first, of course, is Inframan, which is a comic book movie that just delivers on every level. It's like they made a movie out of the poster rather than the other way around. We're due for a write-up of that on Teleport City soon, so we'll eventually give it its due. Another one is Johnny Toe's Heroic Trio, which delivers its superhero tropes with a lot of beauty and glamour. At the same time, I do enjoy films that are derived from other countries' pulp and comic book culture, which is often completely unknown to the American mainstream. An example of that would be the Red Eagle movies based on a series of Thai pulp novels from the 50s. These were made throughout the 60s in Thailand starring Mitch Chaibansha, who was 
by far the biggest star in Thailand at the time, Red Eagle being a masked Avenger type of character. The series was so popular that they even rebooted it in 2010 with a very CGI-rich remake. Not very good, unfortunately. Another example is the Darna movies from the Philippines. She being, well, to be reductive about it, sort of the Philippines version of Wonder Woman. Very enjoyable series of movies. Then, of course, I have to address the Italian Fumetti movies based on Italian Fumetti characters like Diabolic. Danger Diabolic being one of my favorites also, and the criminal movies. And of course, Indonesia has a very rich comic book culture, which provided material for a lot of film series, one of those being Panji Tenkarak, uh, the first film in that series. Oh, that means Panji the Skull Face, by the way. He's almost a horror character as well as a superhero. Uh, the first film in that series was called The Ghostly Face and also starred Polly Shang Kwan, who's also one of my favorites. So how could I not like that? Uh, another uh, Indonesian superhero who I reviewed the film of was Gundala, Son of Lightning, who is sort of an Indonesian version of The Flash. I mentioned glamour earlier, and what better mode of escape than glamour? I love glamour as much as the next glamour-obsessed person. Uh, and that informs my love of Bollywood movies, of course, where the where the stars are treated like gods, and pageantry, idol worship, spectacle, and opulence are the norm. And of course, glamour and violence makes for an especially potent cocktail, and that's something that the 60s really understood, especially in terms of its spy cinema. So of course, I love the Connery Bond movies and the films of the Eurospy genre. But I think my favorite film that sits at the intersection of violence and glamour is another of my top favorites, and this is another Hong Kong film, Clarence Fox's Naked Killer from 1992, which is a film that is beautiful, erotic, and incredibly violent. Moving on to another aspect of escapist cinema that I'm especially attracted to is the creation of false reality or not so much the creation but the revelation of false reality. These would be films in which we escape reality by recontextualizing it and basically what more radical way to do that than to show that the reality that we experience every day is false. Uh, this is really a Philip K. Dick sort of idea, you know, with stories like he did, like Time Out of Joint, or more to my point, a situationist kind of idea that this corporatized and heavily mediated thing so many of us take for granted as everyday life is nothing but an artificial construct. I think the most well-known cinematic example of this idea is The Matrix, but I think that a more literal example is John Carpenter's They Live. I mean, They Live is really a situationist film. If you think about it, I think Guy Debord would have liked it a lot. It's basically like Rowdy Roddy Piper's Magic Glasses or a shortcut to the situationist practice of the derive, which was their reclaiming of the urban experience from the prescribed dictates of the official culture for their own use. 
Um, but anyway, that's enough high-mindedness for me for now. But my favorite film, and this is perhaps my favorite film of all time here, in which reality's facade is torn away, is Hammer's Quatermass and the Pit, otherwise known as Five Million Years to Earth, which was made in 1967. This is the movie in which humanity is shown to be the descendants of a Martian slave race and still hardwired to respond to the commands of the Martian overlords. I love the end at the moment when the truth is revealed, the facade of reality literally crumbles and the people of London, driven to madness, take to the streets and start killing the animals. Uh, it's really a chilling vision of apocalypse. It never fails to give me a perverse thrill <laughs> ever since I first saw it when I was probably eight years old. I've seen this film so many times. I love it. Lastly, I should, you know, given the topic of this podcast, I should address the issue of horror or the topic of horror and sci-fi because given my taste for unreality you'd think that my preferred genres would be horror and sci-fi and that's where my journey toward film obsession started I was definitely obsessed with horror fantasy and sci-fi when I was a kid but the truth is I've, I've moved away from them horror in particular over the past few years the problem with modern horror is that to me it seems to have fallen very victim to irony on the one hand and earnestness on the other with little in the way of a happy medium in between for what it's worth i blame geek culture for the former and the japanese for the latter but anyway that aside i don't tend to get scared much by horror movies anymore and these days the things that i find the scariest in movies tend to arise out of character the scariest character i saw this year in a film was in a what I think is a an unfairly maligned film Prisoners which had Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal in it yeah it was a little worthy and it was a little it was a little much in a lot of ways but it really got trashed that aside the character that Melissa Leo played in that movie scared the shit out of me and I won't elaborate on that anymore because I don't want to spoil the movie it's actually worth seeing as far as the scariest film I saw this year, that was actually a documentary, The Act of Killing. Uh, as a lot of you already know, this film asks a group of men who were members of an Indonesian anti-Marxist death squad following the military coup in the mid-60s, guys who brutally killed thousands of people with their bare hands in just atrocious ways and keeping in mind that while the stated goal was to rid Indonesia of communism in truth a communist was anybody who was deemed to be an obstacle to the regime and this also included the families of these people women and children wives husbands etc these men were asked by the filmmakers to recreate what everyone outside of Indonesia would call their crimes within an entertainment medium basically they're asked to direct themselves in a genre film that will show the world what they did. The chilling thing is that 
These guys don't see what they did as crimes. This film is a pretty unsettling illustration of the adage that history is told by the winners. These guys are the winners. The regime that they supported is still in power in Indonesia. So basically, these are guys that go on late-night chat shows and laughably, amid joking references, talk about beheading people as if these were the best days of their lives. And I can't think of anything nearly as scary as that that I have seen in any horror film in quite a long time. This is an incredibly powerful film, and I'd highly recommend it. And with that, struggling to reel everything back in and tie it in a nice bow, as I so elegantly do, I'll just say that, uh, Miguel, you asked, I answered, To the rest of you, I thank you for your time and your patience. Once again, this is Todd Statman of Die Danger, Die, Die, Kill. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. I did indeed ask, and you did indeed answer. I couldn't have hoped for better. I feel the need to point out some references that may have escaped some listeners. First of all, Lucha cinema refers to a whole genre of films featuring Mexican Lucha Libre masked wrestlers. Also, in the part where Todd is talking about the John Carpenter film They Live, Todd adds, Guy Debord would love it. Guy Debord was a French philosopher who wrote a 1967 book called The Society of Spectacle, in which he asserts that our social reality is actually a series of representative falsehoods. It's a familiar idea, and one that seems to have even more potency in the internet age. I loved the idea that he would enjoy the film They Live, and I just felt the need to point that out and talk about it a bit further. If there's anything I truly love about Moss, the mysterious order of the skeleton suit, and the agents who make up our organization, it is the awesome amount of things I think we learn from each other. Just from Todd's 20-minute treaties, I have come up with lots of topics I'd love to explore further in future episodes of this podcast. If I may, here are the broader concepts that Todd discussed. 1. The notion of film as a means of total escape from both reality and logic. It's like a middle finger to all those looking for logic in films, particularly those snobs who like to point out lapses of logic in films. 2. The enclosed reality of exceptionally bizarre films, or films that have a reality that pertains only within the confines of the film itself. 3. Films depicting an acute hyper-reality of extreme color, extreme set design, or extreme acting. 4. The notion of the superhero and how their depiction differs in different cultures. 5. The strange blending of glamour and violence. 6. The revelation of reality as an unreality. And 7. Finally, Todd's critique of modern horror strikes me as interesting. His views of modern horror existing squarely on either side of a spectrum, with hipster irony on one side and verite earnestness on the other, is something especially that I'd like to explore further. I note that this is the thing that we didn't get any examples from Todd, and I'm hoping he would be willing to elucidate in the future. I know we can probably think of some, I certainly could myself, but 
I'm curious what exactly he was thinking of. I am also curious about his views on geek culture and how they relate to the irony side of that spectrum. I'm thinking of the MST3K culture that I plan on doing an episode about soon. It is also interesting to me that he blames Japanese horror for the earnestness side of the spectrum. This is especially appropriate considering the films that Todd has charged me with reviewing for his site this month. In the end, hearing someone else's heartfelt philosophies about this stuff serves to make me think a little more about my own. Particularly since I discuss horror in history, art, literature, film, and beyond, I often hear people say they don't get into horror movies because they no longer get scared at films. This makes me have thoughts for myself because I don't get really scared at films anymore either, but that's also not my aim. I'm more interested in how people choose to express fear in their art, or express the things that cause fear in others. But anyway, I don't want to get too carried away. All of these things are musings for future episodes. In the meantime, remember to continue the conversation with me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Monster Resort, and Todd can be reached there as well. He is at 4DK. That's four spelled out, F-O-U-R-D-K. Follow all of the Mysterious Order of the Skeleton Suit's work on skeletonsuit.wordpress.com. And, of course, look out for my upcoming article on diedangerdiediekill.blogspot.com. And until then, stay scared. Stay scared.